Section 24 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 24. The Saracen Conquest of Syria, A.D. 636, by Simon Ockley, Part 1. Abu Bekr was chosen caliph, or caliph, signifying successor, to Muhammad, but died after a reign of two years. His successor, Caliph Omar, continued with unabated ardor the efforts for the spread of Islam which Abu Bekr had initiated by sending an invading expedition into Persia, and another into the Roman provinces of Syria. The victorious armies of the Crescent were by this time far advanced beyond the frontiers of Arabia, and with fanatic zeal endeavoring to obey the Prophet's injunction to Islamicize mankind. Allah il Allah, God is God, was their inspiring war cry, and Muhammad is the Prophet of God, their watchword. With scimitar and Koran in either hand, they offered the conquered infidels Islam or the sword. The Oxus, which alone separated Saracen territory from that of Syria, was easily passed. Damascus was conquered, and the impetuous spirit of the Muslims led them rapidly on to Heliopolis, then to Hems or Emesa. In subtlety they were no less practiced than they were well proved in courage, and by many arts they succeeded in creating diversions among their adversaries, and often in enlisting them under the Saracen standard. By making the Syrians understand something of their language, customs, and religion, they prepared them for assimilation when once subjected. In some cases, dissensions among the Syrians led them to invoke the intervention of those who came to subjugate them. In less than two years, the Saracens had conquered the Syrian plain and valley, but still they reproached themselves for loss of time, and with redoubled zeal pressed on to new victories. The forces arrayed against them were greatly augmented both from Asia and Europe, but the disciplined veterans of the Roman emperor Heraclius and the recruits from the provinces vainly confronted the Arabs, whose valor was of the nature of religious frenzy, which no assault could cause to quail. They won at fearful cost to themselves, but with greater loss to their enemies at the Battle of Yermuk, and there caused the Roman army to abandon active warfare against them. It was then open to the victors to select their own objective among the Syrian cities, and following the counsel of Ali, they entered at once upon the siege of Jerusalem, although they held that city next to Mecca and Medina in veneration. After a siege of four months, Jerusalem capitulated, her defenders having no rest from the ceaseless assaults of the besiegers. Hard work still lay before the Saracens in Syria, but after the reduction of Aleppo, which cost several months' siege, with great loss of lives to the invaders, they passed on to Antioch and other strongholds, until, one by one, all had been subdued, the surrender of Caesarea completing the great conquest and the subjection of Syria to the rule of the caliph. Heraclius, wearied with a constant and uninterrupted succession of ill news, which like those of Job came every day treading upon the heels of each other, grieved at the heart to see the Roman Empire, once the mistress of the world, now become the scorn and spoil of barbarian insolence, resolved, if possible, to put an end to the outrages of the Saracens once for all. With this view, he raised troops in all parts of his dominions, and collected so considerable an army as since the first invasion of the Saracens had never appeared in Syria, 
not much unlike one engaged in single combat who, distrustful of his own abilities and fearing the worst, summons together his whole strength in hopes of ending the dispute with one decisive blow. Troops were sent to every tenable place which this inundation of the Saracens had not as yet reached, particularly to Caesarea and all the seacoast of Syria, as Tyre and Sidon, Acca, Joppa, Tripolis, Beirut, and Tiberias, besides another army to defend Jerusalem. The main body, which was designed to give battle to the whole force of the Saracens, was commanded by one Mahan, an Armenian, whom I take to be the very same that the Greek historians call Manuel. To his generals, the emperor gave the best advice, charging them to behave themselves like men, and especially to take care to avoid all differences or dissensions. Afterward, when he had expressed his astonishment at this extraordinary success of the Arabs, who were inferior to the Greeks in number, strength, arms, and discipline, after a short silence a grave man stood up and told him that the reason of it was that the Greeks had walked unworthily of their Christian profession, and changed their religion from what it was when Jesus Christ first delivered it to them, injuring and oppressing one another, taking usury, committing fornication, and fomenting all manner of strife and variance among themselves. The emperor answered that he was too sensible of it. He then told them that he had thoughts of continuing no longer in Syria, but, leaving his army to their management, he purposed to withdraw to Constantinople, in answer to which they represented to him how much his departure would reflect upon his honor, what a lessening it would be to him in the eyes of his own subjects, and what occasion of triumph it would afford to his enemies, the Saracens. Upon this they took their leave and prepared for their march. Besides a vast army of Asiatics and Europeans, Mahan was joined by al-Jabala ibn al-Ayham, king of the Christian Arabs, who had under him sixty thousand men. These Mahan commanded to march always in the front, saying that there was nothing like diamond to cut diamond. This great army, raised for the defense of Christian people, was little less insupportable than the Saracens themselves, committing all manner of disorder and outrage as they passed along, especially when they came to any of those places which had made any agreement with the Saracens, or surrendered to them, they swore and cursed and reviled the inhabitants with reproachful language, and compelled them by force to bear them company. The poor people excused their submission to the Saracens by their inability to defend themselves, and told the soldiers that if they did not approve of what they had done, they ought themselves to have come sooner to their relief. The news of this great army having reached the Saracens while they were at Hems filled them full of apprehensions, and put them to a very great strait as to the best course to pursue in this critical juncture. Some of them would very willingly have shrunk back and returned to Arabia. This course, they urged, presented a double advantage. On the one hand, they would be sure of speedy assistance from their friends, and on the other, in that barren country, the numerous army of the enemy must needs be reduced to great scarcity. But Abu Obeidah, fearing lest such a retreat might by the caliph be interpreted cowardice in him, durst not approve of this advice. Others would rather die in the defense of those stately buildings, fruitful fields, and pleasant meadows they had won by the sword, than voluntarily to return to their former starving condition. They proposed, therefore, to remain where they were and wait the approach of the enemy. But Khalid disapproved of their remaining in their present position, as it was too near Caesarea, where Constantine, the emperor's son, lay with 40,000 men, and recommended that they should march to Yermuk, where they might reckon on assistance from the caliph. As soon as Constantine heard of their departure, 
he sent a chiding letter to Mahan and bade him mend his pace. Mahan advanced, but made no haste to give the Saracens battle, having received orders from the emperor to make overtures of peace, which were no sooner proposed than rejected by Abu Obaidah. Several messages passed between them, the Saracens endeavoring to bring their countryman Jabala ibn al-Ayyam with his Christian Arabs to a neutrality were answered that they were obliged to serve the emperor and resolved to fight. Upon this, Khalid, contrary to the general advice, prepared to give him battle before Mahan should come up, although the number of his men, who, however, were the elite of the whole army, was very inconsiderable, urging that the Christians, being the army of the devil, had no advantage by their numbers against the Saracens, the army of God. In choosing his men, Khalid had called out more answers than Mohajerans, which, when it was observed, occasioned some grumbling, as it then was doubted whether it was because he respected them most, or because he had a mind to expose them to the greater danger, that he might favor the others. Khalid told them that he had chosen them without any such regard, only because they were persons he could depend upon, whose valor he had proved, and who had the faith rooted in their hearts. One Kathib, happening to be called after his brother Sahal, and looking upon himself to be the better man, resented it as a high affront, and roundly abused Khalid. The latter, however, gave him very gentle and modest answers, to the great satisfaction of all, especially of Abu Obaidah, who, after a short contention, made them shake hands. Khalid, indeed, was admirable in this respect, that he knew no less how to govern his passions than to command the army, though, to most great generals, the latter frequently proves the easier task of the two. In this hazardous enterprise, his success was beyond all expectation, for he threw Jabala's Arabs into disorder and killed a great many, losing very few of his own men on the field, besides five prisoners, three of whom were Yazid ibn Abu Sofyan, Rafi ibn Omera, and Darar ibn al-Alzwar, all men of great note. Abu Obeda sent Abdallah ibn Kort with an express to Omar, acquainting him with their circumstances, begging his prayers and some fresh recruits of Unitarians, a title they glory in, as reckoning themselves the only asserters of the unity of the deity. Omar and the whole court were extremely surprised, but comforted themselves with the promises made to them in the Koran, which seemed now to be all they had left to trust to. To encourage the people, he went into the pulpit and showed them the excellency of fighting for the cause of God, and afterward returned an answer to Abu Obeda, full of such spiritual consolation as the Koran could afford. Omar commanded Abdallah, as soon as ever he came near the camp and before he delivered the letter, to cry out good news in order to comfort the Muslims and ease them in some measure of the perplexing apprehensions they labored under. As soon as he received this letter and message, together with Omar's blessing, he prepared to set out on his return to the army, but suddenly he remembered that he had omitted to pay his respects at Muhammad's tomb, which it was very uncertain whether he should ever see again. Upon this he hastened to Aisha's house, the place where Muhammad was buried, and found her sitting by the tomb with Ali and Abbas, and Ali's two sons, Hassan and Hossein, one sitting upon Ali's lap, the other upon Abbas's. Ali was reading the chapter of beasts, being the sixth of the Koran, and Abbas the chapter of Hud, which is the eleventh. Abdallah, having paid his respects to Muhammad, Ali asked him whether he did not think of going. He answered yes, but he feared he should not get to the army before the battle, which yet he greatly wished to do, if possible. If you desired a speedy journey, answered Ali, why did not you ask Omar to pray for you? 
Don't you know that the prayers of Omar will not be turned back? Because the apostle of God said of him, If there were a prophet to be expected after me, it would be Omar, whose judgment agrees with the book of God. The prophet said of him besides, If an universal calamity were to come from heaven upon mankind, Omar would escape from it. Wherefore, if Omar prayed for thee, thou shalt not stay long for an answer from God. Abdallah told him that he had not spoken one word in praise of Omar, but what he was very sensible of before. Only he desired to have not only his prayers, but also those of all the Muslims, and especially of those who were at the tomb of the Prophet. At these words, all present lifted up their hands to heaven, and Ali said, O God, I beseech thee, for the sake of this chosen apostle, in whose name Adam prayed, and thou answeredst his petition and forgavest his sins, that thou wouldst grant to Abdallah ibn Kort a safe and speedy return, and assist the followers of thy prophet with help, O thou who alone art great and munificent. Abdallah set out immediately, and afterward returned to the camp with such incredible speed that the Saracens were surprised. But their admiration ceased when he informed them of Omar's blessing and Ali's prayers at Muhammad's tomb. Recruits were instantly raised in every part of Arabia to send to the army. Said ibn Amir commanded them, having received a flag of red silk at the hands of Omar, who told him that he gave him that commission in hopes of his behaving himself well in it, advising him, among other things, not to follow his appetites, and not forgetting to put him in hopes of further advancement if he should deserve it. Said thanked him for his advice, adding that if he followed it, he should be saved. And now, said Said, as you have advised me, so let me advise you. Speak on, said Omar. I bid you then, added the other, fear God more than men, and not the contrary, and love all the Muslims as yourself and your family, as well those at a distance as those near you, and command that which is praiseworthy, and forbid that which is otherwise. Omar, all the while he spoke, stood looking steadfastly upon the ground, leaning his forehead upon his staff. Then he lifted up his head, and the tears ran down his cheeks, and he said, Who is able to do this without the divine assistance? Ali bade Said make good use of the caliph's advice, and dismissed him. Said, as he marched toward the army, lost his way, which turned out very unfortunate for the Christians, for by that means he fell in with the prefect of Amman with five thousand men. Said, having cut all the foot to pieces, the prefect fled with the horse, but was intercepted by a party which had been sent out under Zobeir from the Saracen camp to forage. Said at first thought they had fallen together by the ears, and were fighting among themselves, but when he came up and heard the Teshir, he was well satisfied. Zobeir ran the prefect through with a lance. Of the rest, not a single man escaped. The Saracens cut off all their heads, then flayed them, and so carried them upon the points of their lances, presenting a most horrible spectacle to all that part of the country, till they came to the army, which received fresh courage by the accession of this reinforcement, consisting of 8,000 men. However, their satisfaction was greatly lessened by the loss of the five prisoners whom Jabala ibn al-Ayyam had taken. Now it happened that Mahan desired Abu Obaidah to send one of his officers to him for a conference. This being complied with, Khalid proffered his services, and being accepted by Abu Obaidah, by his advice he took along with him a hundred men, chosen out of the best soldiers in the army. Being met and examined by the outguards, the chief of whom was Jabala ibn al-Ayyam, they were ordered to wait till the general's pleasure should be known. Mahan would have had Khalid come to him alone and leave his men behind him, but as Khalid refused to hear of this, they were commanded as soon as they came near the general's tent to alight from their horses and deliver their swords, 
and when they would not submit to this either, they were at last permitted to enter as they pleased. They found Mahan sitting upon a throne, and seats prepared for themselves, but they refused to make use of them, and, removing them, sat down upon the ground. Mahan asked them the reason of their doing so, and taxed them with want of breeding. To which Khalid answered that that was the best breeding which was from God, and what God has prepared for us to sit down upon is purer than your tapestries, defending their practice from a sentence of their prophet Muhammad, backed with this text of the Koran. Out of it, meaning the earth, we have created you, and to it we shall return you, and out of it we shall bring you another time. Mahan began then to expostulate with Khalid concerning their coming into Syria, and all those hostilities which they had committed there. Mahan seemed satisfied with Khalid's way of talking, and said that he had before that time entertained a quite different opinion of the Arabs, having been informed that they were a foolish, ignorant people. Khalid confessed that that was the condition of most of them, till God sent their prophet Muhammad to lead them into the right way, and teach them to distinguish good from evil, and truth from error. During this conference they would argue very coolly for a while, and then again fly into a violent passion. At last it happened that Khalid told Mahan that he should one day see him led with a rope about his neck to Omar to be beheaded. Upon this Mahan told him that the received law of all nations secured ambassadors from violence, which he supposed had encouraged him to take that indecent freedom. However, he was resolved to chastise his insolence in the persons of his friends, the five prisoners, who should instantly be beheaded. At this threat, Khalid, bidding Mahan attend to what he was about to say, swore by God, by Muhammad, and the holy temple of Mecca, that if he killed them, he should die by his hands, and that every Saracen present should kill his man, be the consequences what they might, and immediately rose from his place and drew his sword. The same was done by the rest of the Saracens. But when Mahan told him that he would not meddle with him for the aforesaid reasons, they sheathed their swords and talked calmly again. And then Mahan made Khalid a present of the prisoners, and begged of him his scarlet tent, which Khalid had brought with him, and pitched hard by. Khalid freely gave it him, and refused to take anything in return, though Mahan gave him his choice of whatever he liked best, thinking his own gift abundantly repaid by the liberation of the prisoners. End of section 24